Hello and welcome to Quadrivia, the podcast that takes you a step beyond trivia and into the minds of the people who craft it. I'm Jay of Smarty Pints fame. I'm Jason with Liquid Courage Entertainment based out of the Chicago area. Uh, and I'm Dan uh, from PQB Live and uh, Pub Quiz Bowl. Well, Dan, it's really good to have you on. How have you been lately uh, as a new voice to the podcast? How's it going? I feel like asking that question to anybody in the year 2021 is I'm not you're not gonna like the answer you get. Um, I'm hanging in there. I don't know. Um, you know, yeah, as far I, as the trivia is going, it's it's going all right, I would say. Yeah, I find myself bouncing back and forth between saying hanging in there, living the dream. You know how it goes. Just just all like the Midwest white guy tropes for responding to that <laughs> that question. Like, oh, yeah, you betcha. It's going fine. You know, I uh, can't complain. Oh, I am just uh, I, I forget sometimes you're from Minnesota and then you remind me in these little moments. Well, that, I, that was leading into it. I'm not I'm actually from Texas originally, but yeah, I've been up here for about 10 years and can do the the annoying Fargo accent if I have to, <laughs> I suppose. So, yeah, I could do that for the entire episode. You'll get your lowest listening numbers ever. Just let me know. <laughs> yeah, I've been led to believe Fargo doesn't exist. Can you confirm or deny that information for me? Oh, uh, this is your your bit. Yeah, no, we we never heard of it. Uh, we all know Brainerd's home of Paul Bunyan, Babe the Blue Ox. Uh, Fargo, that's nothing. <laughs> oh, trying boy. to think now, like from my memory of where Saskatchewan is, which one of you is actually closer to North Dakota, Minnesota, or or where Jay is out in? Uh, where are you again specifically, Jay? Oh, the the city that rhymes with fun. Yeah, there Regina, it is. Saskatchewan here. Yeah, I actually opened up a map just uh, because I'm so bad at my geography. Uh, it looks like we're about uh, equally distant from North Dakota. But, uh, Dan, you must be freezing to death too, right? Like you're in oh, that yeah, polar it's, vortex. It's a balmy negative five here today. It's wonderful. Uh, Wait, so how, sitting inside and doing a podcast sounds just about right. How the hell am I the tropical one at a an absolutely scorching uh, 10 degrees Fahrenheit? Oh, it, was, it was minus uh, 40... Well, minus 50 Celsius last night. So I think that's about minus 60. In, that's uh, weird that's not a time. real temperature, Jay. Yeah, I know I'm... negative 40 is the same in both of them. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's a lot. Yeah, we're, uh, we're getting something crazy up here. <laughs> well, now I feel kind of <laughs> shitty for complaining about minus five. But, you know, I, uh, I oh, I'm happily bitching years. about 10. You're fine. After my furnace died uh, over because of overuse on Monday. Um, oh, yeah, I, I feel oh. like I have the right to, uh, to put people in their place about cold temperatures. <laughs> we, yeah, I had a freak out about that like a week ago where I was changing the filter on my furnace and then it stopped working and it was negative 10 degrees outside. And it was just like, no, no one's going to be able to come in. And then I realized I just inadvertently like flipped the light switch on it, which turns it on and off, <laughs> uh, which probably saved me the dumbest 200 bucks I would ever have to spend, but also made me feel not particularly handy about things. Oh, yeah. I, I was feeling quite unhandy when the furnace repair guy told me that I was using my spring filters in winter, and that's what was causing my crappy furnace to stop working. So uh, uh, word to the wise, uh, don't do that <laughs> in minus 50. See, your complaints make me feel really bad because about a week ago, uh, our new tankless water heater that we installed like a month ago decided to just absolutely shit the bed. And my biggest complaint is I couldn't take a nice warm bubble bath at one in the morning. <laughs> And I asked oh, the guy, uh, the, the repair guy who came out uh, from the company that installed it, I said, hey, you know, all the research I did last night said that the input uh, vent should absolutely be outside air in, you know, cold Midwestern weather. And he said, no, it's fine. Uh, by the way, your exhaust uh, vent uh, completely froze over. I'm like, of 
Of course it did. We're taking the air from the room the humidifier is in, you dingus. <laughs> did he also give you, like, good bubble bath tips? He's like, oh, yeah, you know, you gotta, the water's gotta be just right. You wanna, a bath bomb is the way to go. Oh, I am an aficionado at this point. I don't need outside uh, answers on that. So before we get into the, the main kind of crux of the episode, Dan, do you want to take a minute to talk about uh, yourself, talk about uh, PQB Live, uh, who you are in the trivia world and who you're looking to be, and maybe your your third favorite city in Minnesota? All right. Uh, so yeah, my name is, uh, full name is Dan Burgess. Uh, I go by D-Berg, uh, kind of in the Twitch world, I would say. Um, I am one of the three folks who are behind what's called a Pub Quiz Bowl or PQB Live. It's me. Uh, Eric Nelson and Danny Vopava. Uh, we're all kind of headquartered here in the Twin Cities. Uh, that company started as uh, basically like a quiz bowl company for high school and college that specialized in what's called trash, uh, which is basically pop culture stuff. You know, l- asking less about the Roman Empire and more about like, you know, what Japanese Roman anime, blah, blah, blah. Um, and about, I want to say like July last year, Four months after everybody else in the world started doing it, we were like, hey, let's go on Twitch and do a game. Uh, The market's not oversaturated at all. It's going to work out great. (laughs) Um, And we have been kind of, yeah, continuing to do that for the last six, seven months. Uh, So we have our own Twitch channel. It's twitch.tv slash PQB live, where we do a game every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central. Uh, and the idea behind that game is we try and kind of, it's kind of like a fusion of uh, the, the pub quiz bowl or, or the, the quiz bowl format and kind of what you'd see in a pub quiz. Um, and so what we do is we have 20 questions that we ask, which range from academic subjects like history, literature, fine arts. And then we have pop culture stuff. We ask about films, sports, television. And the idea is that for each one of those 20 questions, we'll ask a question um, that'll have an answer line, you know, give us the famous author described below. And then Mm. we'll give you three clues for, we'll give you a hard clue for three points, an easy clue for two points, or a medium clue for two points, and an easy clue for one point. And after each one of those, we'll give you 30 seconds to answer. And depending on when you answer, you get more points uh, for answering the harder clues than the easier ones. So it's kind of our attempt to, you know, to, to ask the kind of questions you might get in a pub quiz game, but at the same time, you know, have a kind of timing strategy based element where you get to choose your own adventure as far as how hard the question you want to ask, you want to answer is. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I've, I've played it. I've seen it. It's a really solid idea. I didn't come in knowing a lot about, you know, the, the quiz bowl format, but to your point, um, not a lot of like live trivia shows have adopted that so you're definitely standing out in the space in that regard and i can't help but notice that uh you with that format you kind of have built in um automatic kind of difficulty grading which beautifully i should say leads us into our roundtable discussion uh where gentlemen today we're going to be talking about uh something very important in the trivia world uh the concept of question difficulty and uh more specifically uh, things like get rate percentages, you know, how many teams in a given night get a given question. So hopefully you're up for that. Uh, Deberg, I, I suppose I'll throw it to you real quick first by saying that you uh, are fucking my get rates. <laughs> okay. Glad to help. <laughs> you specifically, my friend. Um, 
No, I'm kidding. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Deberg pops into to some of my classic games from time to time and is, um, I think you buried the lead a little bit about yourself. Uh, you are an absolute powerhouse at the concept of pub trivia, my friend. And uh, questions that I write that I think are going to have teams scratching their head, you answer in 15 seconds with a punny quip added. So uh, that's the reason I wanted to bring you in on this episode specifically, because I think you're going to talk about uh, question difficulty from a slightly different perspective than maybe Jay and I are in terms of our whole focus has really only ever been professionally trying to find that sweet spot. Uh, whereas you are, you know, one of the one of the stronger players I've ever experienced uh, in my years. So you might be looking at this from a slightly different perspective in that regard. So I guess the question um, for you as a player we'll start with before we get into uh, the writing is, uh, what kind of difficulty do you want in a pub trivia night, just kind of across the board? So first of all, thank you very much. I appreciate the compliment. Um, you know, I'm, I'm decent at this. Um, what I look for, what I'm really interested in a game is is a game where I'm going to learn something I didn't know, uh, which I think generally means questions uh, at a level of difficulty at which, you know, I'm not just going to insta answer all of them. Um, and so I like my games to be kind of on the challenging side. Mm -hmm. That being, you know, challenging without being so esoteric that it's not a thing anybody could be expected to know. I've played pub trivia games where Basically, they're asking facts that they pulled off of like the fourth page of Wikipedia that no one in their right mind would ever know. You know, what's the what's the seventh word in the second verse of this song or something? Um, that type of trivia doesn't interest me. But trivia that's legitimately difficult um, and that teaches the players something they didn't already know um, and something interesting is kind of what I what I look for in my games and hopefully mm -hmm. what we kind of provide with the format that we do on our channel. You know, one of the things we we try and focus on is, you know, not just providing questions at an appropriate level of difficulty, but also providing questions where, you know, if you don't know the three-point clue, you're, you're hopefully learning something interesting about the subject that maybe you can use later on. Yeah, I like that the format kind of bakes that in for you. Uh, the three-point clue can be looked at as kind of the, the educational fact, the two-point clue, in a sense, is your you can tease it out style clue, and then the one point is is almost the Pavlovian beat you over the head style clue. Would you would you say that that's kind of par for the course? That's that's about right. Yeah. Um, the idea is we want you know. Lately, we've been averaging like 14, 15 teams playing our game on Twitch. The idea is that for the three point clue, you know, we'd look for somewhere between two and four teams to get it, um, or the three point clue rather. We want somewhere between two and four teams to mm -hmm. get it. Um, for the two-point clue, we want, you know, a little bit more than half. And by the one-point clue, we're hoping that pretty much everybody's going to be able to get it for that one-point clue, with the exception of maybe one or two teams per question. Um, and so, yeah, the one-point clue really is kind of the beat you over the head. This is the easiest we can make this clue <laughs> kind of uh, format. Okay, so if you're going to curve that out, it's kind of a, a 10, 50, 90 situation from uh, the three-point to the one-point? Yeah, I'd say that's probably okay. about right. You know, I, I, I think it's a it's generally there have been one or two times where we'll put something in a three point clue that we don't think anybody's going to get because it's such an interesting fact that we're like, we have to put this in here because it's really cool. Um, but other than those handful of times, you know, I generally think of it. It's a question writing failure if nobody gets it on the three point clue. And it's a question writing failure if half of the teams get it on the three point clue. You know, we're, we're looking for. 10, 15, yeah, and then 50, and then 90, probably. 
place about yeah that. i can i can see what you're saying on that um and you you've seen obviously my live shows where uh i came into an interesting thing yesterday i simul i simulcasted my stream uh from a live venue that had three teams actively playing and the get rates that i noticed uh on my kind of bog standard questions between the online teams and the live teams were wildly different in some cases. Like I would whiff the three teams live on a question that 85% of online teams would get. So of course uh, they're drinking. It's a brewery. Uh, every three or four questions, a bunch of people would shout, they're fucking cheating. I'm like, no, you, you don't know these people that are coming to my <laughs> online game. I wish that I could accuse them, but I can't because I, you know, um, you know, people like you, T-Berg, and, and people who have been like multiple day Jeopardy champions play my game and it's throwing off my ability to curve a game that's still interesting and entertaining. And I hope that I'm getting there. Uh, but as I find I'm writing for some new formats, um, like my Tringo games, uh, when I do some of the concept stuff that I do on Saturday nights and I'm, I'm writing kind of from a, a blank sheet of paper, uh, my get rates are very different on those compared to my standard, you know, team in a bar expectation environment uh, questions. And I wonder if it's so much that I'm trying to to raise the tide as I see these high get rates on some of my uh, older or more kind of standard questions, or if it's because the format changes so much that teams are a little thrown off by it and, and on their back heels. Uh, you have played in Tringo. You have played in one or two of the other formats, I think. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I think one of the reasons you might see different results in your Tringo game is just, you know, the deeper you dive into a particular subject matter, you know, there are players, you know, I will, I will happily admit that when it comes to trivia stuff, I am, I'm something of a generalist on most things. I have a, I try and give myself a surface level knowledge of pretty much every subject, but if you were to go, you know, much deeper than surface level on Disney Channel shows or musicals or golf. I'm very quickly going to be completely out of my depth and unable to answer your questions. Um, and so I think one thing that Tringo does is you have these categories suggested by the users where you can do a deeper dive into them and reward players who have a more than surface level subject knowledge of that subject matter. While at the same time, the, the folks who are going to be acing every one of the general knowledge questions are going to be left a little bit in the dark, um, which is not a bad thing. You know, it helps mix things up. It helps give give players who wouldn't ordinarily have the chance to win in a Tringo game the chance to, you know, to, to actually beat some of the big fish. So I think that's potentially a, a good a, a good feature of those games. Yeah, the counterpoint I would throw in, though, uh, and at least from my experience, perspective writing it is I don't want to write expert subject matter knowledge into a general knowledge kind of game so it, it makes it difficult for instance a uh, category that was suggested several months ago was was Fortnite and I don't want to write a whole round about like esoteric deep dive uh, fandom questions about Fortnite for a bunch of players you know I would predict probably 75% of which have never played the game and you know 60% of which have never even seen any of the information I'm about to, put, about to put out there. So the challenge becomes, how do you kind of circle back and make that something that teams who aren't subject matter experts feel at least they have like a guessable into uh, just to make sure the difficulty curve kind of falls in that sweet spot of, I don't know, I'm, I'm aiming these days for about a 60% get rate on average, I would say. Uh, so what I did with that one specifically was I made it a not a mystery theme. They were 10 general knowledge questions where every answer was also the name of an emote or dance you would find in Fortnite. So if you had that expert knowledge going in, you had a leg up, but 
knowledge of Fortnite in and of itself didn't give you any answers automatically. If I can jump in, that's uh, that's absolutely my go-to on these kind of theme nights too. Um, I almost, as a rule, don't. I try to stay away from theme nights. I'm starting to bring them into some of the stuff that I do, but because uh, that's what I find is no matter how you play it, you're going to alienate one group. Either it's going to be um, really specific into a topic, um, and then everyone that's a subject matter expert is going to nail it, um, and anyone that's not is going to feel you know bad about themselves and not have any fun, um, or you're going to have to make it so extremely difficult that um, the experts are also having difficulty, which just alienates kind of the um, surface level players even more. And if you go the other way and make it super approachable to the people that uh, don't know a ton about the subject matter, then the experts are now going to be upset that, hey, this you, you said that this was Fortnite trivia. This isn't Fortnite trivia. This is, uh, this is dance trivia, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, the way that I've sidestepped around that is kind of like what you're saying with um, just doing things that are kind of surface level or share names um, and then maybe throw in one round that is, is really deep just to get people off my back, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it really depends on the, the nature of the event that you're putting together. If it is like an announced theme night that, you know, you've put some promotions into and you're saying, hey, you know, the last Saturday of this month, we're doing, you know, friends trivia. It's, it's 50, 60 questions all about your favorite TV show about misanthropes from the 90s and, and toxic friendship culture and blah, 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 couches or whatever. Um, you want to challenge the diehards but you also want to have some softballs in for the more casual fans, especially in a theme night context where uh, for a lot of people, it's, you know, it's, it's a friend's night out. It's a date night. It's a girl's night out kind of thing. Um, you, you don't want to beat them over the head with the really, really deep dive knowledge. Every damn question. Yeah. I mean, what I'll say is, you know, I think there are kind of two approaches to, to writing questions that I've seen. The one that I think, I think both of y'all kind of adhere to is that you're trying to write every question so that it lands somewhere around a 50% get rate. You know, there, there's obviously a margin for error there, but that I think is what you're, tr you're trying to write questions of equal difficulty, which is a, is a fine approach. The, the approach that we take, you know, we also do a monthly game, which is much more of a standard pub trivia game mm -hmm. uh, where we're, we write within themes. There's a general knowledge round, eight questions per round. And the way that we kind of separate it out is, you know, we say, okay, there's going to be two easy questions that we want pretty much everyone to get. There's going to be two medium questions where we're looking for like a 60% get rate. And then we're going to write two legitimately hard questions about whatever this theme is that we're, that probably the get rate is going to be like 20% or so that where you legitimately have to have a decent amount of knowledge about this subject to get it. And then there's a couple flex like spots in between though. We may go, if we think the two hard questions are really hard, we might throw in an extra easy one or two medium ones if we think it's pretty balanced. And so our goal isn't necessarily to have every question with around the same get right. You know, it, I, I think it's fine to have a question that only a quarter or 20% of players get if it's a legitimately interesting question and if it's mm. fair to the players. Um, and, and as long as you balance it out with, you know, okay, here's an 80%er that most of y'all will be able to get. You know, I'm perfectly fine with that approach. That's kind of how we've viewed things in our game. Um, and we've had a decent amount of success. I think the feedback on that has been pretty, pretty good. Um, so, you know, that, that's kind of my, our approach to difficulty is that 
you know, not every question has to be in that sweet spot of 50%. It's, it, you know, it's okay to ask a hard one if you reward the, the players with an easier one somewhere else down the line. And so, you know, if you're doing a Fortnite game, yeah, you might separate it out. You know, you're, you've got a general knowledge round about dances that everyone can approach. And then maybe you sprinkle in, you know, a half dozen questions, which are legitimately specific to the game about tilted tower or the, you know, the, that's the one Fortnite thing I know. I've run out of Fortnite things to say. Tilted tower was it. But I, I feel like um, there's a magic school bus, maybe. I don't know. Uh, yeah, Miss <laughs> Frizzle comes in. She sprays everybody with a Mac 10. It's really, you know, it, it's a DLC. Um, <laughs> some Easter egg content, but, uh, more, more to your point. Cause I wanted to follow up on that. I think that the format you've kind of landed on for a particular game really absolutely kind of informs, um, what you were saying with, you know, with my game, my classic game, uh, the nature of the beast is that teams wager on their round confidence. So kind of intrinsically by design, I need to, if I don't make every question that same attempted 50% get rate, like you were talking about, at the very least, I should balance the overall difficulty of the round. So it's more strategic and less luck uh, that you can maximize your score because, you know, it doesn't feel fair if you're a team of sports experts and you put your, your highest value on sports and it just happens to be an absolutely brutal sports round compared to the other ones that feels disingenuous and almost punishing. So I guess a very low level subconscious thing I do is try to make sure, well, at least, you know, how would the average pub trivia jack of all trades do across this round in total and try to gauge those compared to each other. Now, as you were saying, especially um, with the formats you were talking about, there is definitely room uh, if your format affords it to uh, front load some easier questions in, say, round one or at the beginning of the round and then back load the, the really hard ones, the brutal ones for your final round or the last question in each round, depending on how you do it. And there is definitely some value in doing that. I know uh, Jeff from RMT Trivia, whether or not he does it by design, tends to do it that way. Uh, his first round questions are worth one point. His final round questions are worth five points in his regular game. So they generally tend to scale up in difficulty while not necessarily... Uh, focusing on particular subject matter from round to round. So there is space there for sure, as you were saying. And I'd like to throw it to Jay real quick, uh, because Jay, of the three of us, I think you have the most raw data uh, in oh, terms I, of get rates and percentages. I've seen Jay's layout. If he doesn't have the most raw data, I'll be shocked. <laughs> um, yeah, let's see what I can say about uh, about get rates. First of all, I, I pulled up Dberg's numbers uh, while you guys were chatting. And uh, I just want to throw out a compliment to D. Berg here. Looking at his stats, I'm just seeing uh, American history, 100% get rate. Business and economics, 100% get rate. Geography, health, language, like holy moly, man. Well, he's got a spot in there for <laughs> Canadian content because that's where that number is going to go down a little bit. I remember running across a question about like the log driver's waltz where I was just like, what in the <laughs> hell is that? Is I'll, I'll tell you, this, this is kind of fun to look at. Actually, I get down to uh, your second worst category is visual art at 86%. Hey, still respectable. And then we go to your worst category, uh, Canadiana, 0%. <laughs> yep, that sounds exactly right, yeah. Yeah, so a bit of a drop-off there. Um, but getting back kind of on topic here with, with get rates and stuff, um, so I'd say I do you know, kind of a blend of um, what the two of you guys are talking about, um, where it is difficult to come up with 10 questions in a round that are all going to hit my golden number of 65% as a get rate, which... Is just what happens to work for me is the 65. Um, 
So I do try to make them kind of a medium difficulty. I like to give a softball for the uh, introductory question, especially if there's a mechanic going on, like, hey, all of your answers rhyme with dog, you know, something like that. Give them a real softball to start things off so they get the mechanic. Give them a real softball to end the round so that uh, if it's a difficult round, uh, it, it almost makes them forget to yell at me <laughs> if the last <laughs> question's nice and easy. Um, but then well, it's I very also... much like a, a, a you know welcome and have a seat in this comfy chair. Would you like some hot chocolate? All right, juggle these chainsaws. All right, <laughs> that, that really good job juggling those chainsaws. Here's a ribbon for you. you that's know, like... that's the approach, really. Um, but I do slip in. I always try to slip in what I call "fuck you" questions, and there's just <laughs> one in a round, uh, and it's honestly something I think no one's going to get. Mm -hmm. um, and what I find that ends up doing to my scoreboard. Um, all of my rounds are marked out of 100, 10 questions, 10 points each, nice and easy. Um, but a perfect round for me is where I have one player at the top with a perfect score of 100, and then I've got everybody else really as high as possible. You know, if I have 100% in first place, one team, that's perfect. And then if I have 10, 15 teams with 90 points, hey, that's perfect for me because end of the day, what that means is these players are walking away. No one feels cheated because, hey, that guy that got 100%, he really knew his stuff. Um, and hey, I got to feel smart too because I almost knew all my stuff. So that's, that's kind of where things land for me. Um, but then the overall get rate with some people that land a little lower, generally about 65% seems to get me okay. that golden scoreboard. Oh, that sounds pretty good. It, it, it reminds me that... Uh, going back to something I, I mentioned several minutes ago about the difference between my my live teams and my online teams, uh, I had never in the history of like ten years of doing my standard pub quiz format, I had never had a perfect score like fifty one for fifty one. Uh, it has happened I think eight times online since twenty twenty. Uh, Dan, I know you are responsible for at least one of them, and a couple other really powerhouse teams have pulled it off. I think five or six teams have gone perfect at this point. And I'll, I'll, I will be completely honest with you, uh, as a writer and with my experience, the hairs on the back of my neck can't help but go up a little bit whenever that happens. But then I realize, uh, like I said earlier, I have some smart fucking people playing my online game, and uh, I can't immediately assume any chicanery whatsoever. So... Yeah, to bring I mean, it it's no, go ahead. I think it's a little bit of both columns. I think, you know, you'd have to be crazy not to ignore the fact that, you know, we're doing this in a format in which like people can pop over to Google and Google stuff. I think the vast majority of people don't do that. But I also think you'd have to be kind of crazy not to think that a few of them do. Um, that being said, there is a huge difference between like the people who happen to attend a particular bar in Illinois on a particular night and like the third place team from Geek Bowl, who is a regular player of my game on Tuesdays. And, you know, to understand that, okay, that conglomeration of people is probably going to do better on the whole than any random like pub trivia team in the country that you'd have to, that, that you'd run into, you know, organically in meat space. Oh, without a doubt, it's definitely a fish and pond scenario for sure. And it's, it's taken me a little while to kind of get used to that, but it, I've never seen it more starkly than I did last night where my online uh, high score was like 144 out of 150 points. My live high score was 97. Oh boy. I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be too harsh on your live players, but I played in your games like 97, especially with the three freebies, you know, a, a team of good players should be probably doing better than that. Now, you know, not everybody's going to be like a trivia whiz and people play for fun and that's fine. But yeah, where you run into the problem is that people who do this very much like 
the only time they think about trivia once a, is once a week when they go to the pub and that's it versus players who legitimately spend a lot of their spare time learning lists and doing flashcards and playing games everywhere. You know, when group A sees group B, the automatic assumption is just like, well, I don't know that, so how could they know that? And that's really, it's people from two different worlds, I think, um, who are doing trivia for two different reasons. And there's nothing wrong with doing trivia, just like have fun, have a drink with friends and whatnot. But you have to then accept that the, you know, the the weirdos like me uh, who spend (laughs) way too much time on this are probably going to beat you because, you know, we, you know, we, we have chosen for whatever reason to devote significant resources to it. Right. It's, it's the difference between the casual player and I don't even want to say the diehard player, but somebody for whom trivia is a legitimate, like hobby where time and money and resources are regularly spent in furtherance of that. You know, it's, it's just, it's a difficult thing. It's writing for those two groups of audiences simultaneously and keeping everybody happy is an incredibly difficult job. And yeah, the fact that you've managed to do it for this long, I think it's a credit to, to how you're writing questions. Um, well, it, it we helps are, that are, the really smart people shit post in their answers. So at least they're pretending <laughs> to be entertained. I don't know. I don't know who you're talking about, <laughs> uh, you know. So I suppose we should uh, transition kind of away from the difficulty that we're aiming for and more towards how do you achieve that difficulty uh, in writing a particular question. Let's say just hypothetically you find a fact and you think it's a neat fact. Um, I I don't have a great example off the top of my head, but uh, you find a fact, you find a neat fact, you want to write it into a question. Um, How do you, as a writer, in the way that you phrase it and the way that you kind of form the question, uh, what kind of techniques, tips, uh, best practices do you use to find a way to put that in the get rate that you kind of generally want it, especially with the understanding that you don't know what literally everyone knows. Yeah, I can, I can take a stab at this, Jason. Um, so I think there's, there's a handful of different options that you have. Um, and this will always happen to me where I'm listening to a podcast or something and I say, Hey, that sounds pretty interesting. Um, and I was listening to one about, uh, the Michelin tire company, and I'm sure everyone in the world knew this except for me, but the Michelin Addendum? Tire Company is the same as the um, uh, Michelin uh, Restaurant Rating Company or the Michelin Guide. I will concede so I thought, that I was surprisingly old when I learned that myself. <laughs> I was I was quite old when I learned that. I was um, older than I like to admit because it, it's just like, what do the two have to do with each other? You know, and it takes you know, you wouldn't think that yes, the company selling tires is out there rating you know hot cuisine, but. Mm-hmm. But then when so you good. go back to the history of the connection, it makes a ton of sense because they were putting sure. out like travel and road guides. Oh yeah, they wanted but you to But that information gets Michelin lost tires. in the history, you know? Um, but anyway, so like that's a, that's a fact that I learned and I was like, I need to, I need to share this with the world because I'm sure there's at least one other person that didn't know this. Um, so for me, that kind of morphed into an entire round of companies that do two different things. So you got Yamaha, who, you know, of course makes musical instruments as well as making, um, uh, bikes, you know, so this kind of mm. turned into a whole round. And this is kind of one way that I was able to get this fact out there was to kind of take this quite simple fact and jam it into a round with a bunch of more difficult examples. Because um, when you start looking into this, there's tons of companies that just happen to sell two things, um, lots of which are much more obscure than than uh, Michelin. So that was kind of an idea of taking, um, well, a round for a single question and kind of hiding it in a round, I mm-hmm. guess, um, to mask it with some more difficult questions. That's one thing I've definitely done in the past. Yeah, I'd say uh, for me, probably the biggest thing I do, uh, I love wordplay clues. 
uh, etymology or connected names or stuff like that. If I can get you in there uh, with some unrelated fact that just shares a name or part of a name, or I can put some kind of punny evocation in the ask, I will absolutely do that. And I'm trying to think of an example that I've written recently that would get you there. All right, so here's here's a good example of uh, what I'm talking about based on a game that uh, will go live on Saturday uh, at time of recording, but should definitely have been played by the time this gets released. So here it's a question about uh, the American Revolution, essentially. And it's despite its name, the Battle of Bunker Hill was primarily fought on which nearby hills situated closer to Boston. Now, I concede that this is absolutely Pavlovian knowledge to trivia fans. Um, just to, to the both of you, but for the non-fans, uh, I threw this clue in. Some familiarity with this answer may be required. Don't hate me. Ah, I get it. Okay. That's, yep, that's uh, clever. Yeah. The answer uh, for anybody listening who's not sure is uh, nearby Breed's Hill. So the, the wordplay clue that I kind of subtly threw in there is the concept of the phrase familiarity breeds contempt. So anytime I can get away with that and get a groan from some of the audience, I feel like I have done my job as a creative question writer not so much uh, a perfect question writer but at least my voice kind of comes through and you have multiple ends to it you have like the pavlovian uh lock-in information uh clue and then of course if you're whiffing on it there's there's some in that you have where if you think creatively or laterally or uh stupid punnily you, know, you, you you can take a stab at it and that i think helps get the get rates a little bit closer to where I want them for, you know, just straight up, uh, for lack of a better word, Jeopardy style questions, where it's just one encapsulated fact that you probably either know or you don't. Well, I was actually just going to compare that to Jeopardy, because I think one of the things that Jeopardy does pretty well is wordplay in their clues. I mean, I'd, I'd say not on every clue. Some of them are just going to be straight up, but I'd say on at least a third of their clues, they throw in some subtle word wordplay based hint that you can kind of use to back solve the answer if you can figure it out. Um, and I think that's that's a very useful technique as far as kind of giving players who don't know that particular fact another way in. You know, I remember we did a for our I think it was a couple months ago for one of our games. We had a question about, you know, the question is originally phrased with something like what Italian company that shares its name with a food item has produced all of the NBA basketball cards in the United States for the past two decades. Which I'm is really not a mad at myself because I used to know this. I used to collect uh, sports cards back in my childhood. Yeah, well, it's, and I, you know, I, we kind of looked at the question, which is like, okay, that's an interesting fact, but I, we feel like not many people are going to know that. Mm. And so our way of kind of providing an end to it was we, we prefaced it with, you know, the statement at the beginning, which is, okay, for this question, we'll just say to you what we want from you. What NBA, what Italian company that shares his name with the food stuff, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's a reference to the song Panini by Lil Nas X. Mm, okay. Uh, which, whose chorus is say to me what you want from me. Right. Done right. in the exact same cadence as in bloom by Nirvana, which probably resulted in a lawsuit, but, uh, oh, I'm gonna so that was to this now. So that was kind of a way to, you know, to, to give an additional way into the question. You know, my, my big thing is, you know, kind of the biggest trick that I've used to try and bring the get rate on a, what I think a difficult question up is just provide another avenue of entry. You know, it, that can be done through wordplay. It can be done through additional cluing or, or another sentence at the end of it. And in particular, if you can make the question have different points of entry from different fields. So, you know, have it be about sports ostensibly, 
but there's an in if you know the art world or if you know this book or something like that, then I find that that then you're not locking out the people who are just terrible at sports from being able to answer all the sports questions. You're giving them the opportunity to, to, to utilize a different avenue to get to the same answer. And I'll go a step further on that idea and say, uh, bearing in mind that the assumption is you are putting together a team-based game, uh, that absolutely helps engage multiple members of multiple teams in any given question. Your sports guy might not remember the specific thing, but your fine arts person might make the connection and shotgun guesses out there. And the sports person, you know, it, it bumps the uh, punch bowl, as Jeff would say, uh, and can lock in with confidence based on that. So anytime you can engage multiple people on a team, I feel like you have reached kind of the pinnacle of writing for a team game. Well, and I can't tell you yeah, how many times that's happened to me when actually playing trivia is that there will be a clue that has multiple. I remember there was a Sporkle event, like it was a final that me and my, my regular team were at. And they had a question about, what South African sandwich is made with chicken and with French fries on it, and it shares its name with a Robert Redford film from 1970-something. And I didn't know the sandwich part of it, and our food person couldn't remember that sandwich part of it, but I'm really good on film. And mm. so I just started listing all of the 1970s Robert Redford movies I could think of, and when I got to The Great Gatsby, that person lit up and was just, oh, yes, it's Gatsby, it's called a Gatsby. Um, those kind of aha moments where people are able to work together to get to a clue, kind of each one of them has half of the puzzle and they can put it together, to me, I think are the most, some of the most satisfying when playing a game. And it's, it's, it's nice to be able to provide, provoke that response in players, you know, when you're writing a question. So that's, that's kind of a, that's one trick that I use to try and get a, a question to what I think the sweet spot is for that particular, whatever level of difficulty I'm aiming for. Sometimes I miss completely. You know, especially if it's a subject that's out of what I would consider my wheelhouse. I am legendarily terrible at writing difficult questions about musical theater because I don't know much about it. And when I try, I write some clue that 80% of the teams get instantly because they know it and I don't. And, you know, but it's... I it's, feel your pain hard on that regarding specifically fine arts, where I know you're much stronger than me. Um, even though, you know, Jay would claim it's one of your weaker categories. <laughs> I've got a whole 10 seasons of Learner League that will confirm I am notoriously awful at fine arts, classical music, stuff like that. And it's it is really, really hard to difficulty curve a question that is way outside your own wheelhouse because you don't know if the clue is obvious or if it's so obscure because you're basically just going off what you read in about five minutes of research online. Uh, you know, perusing a Wikipedia entry or finding a listicle or something wherever you're sourcing ideas for your questions and you pick up on a thing you don't know. You're throwing it out there as a hope that it's right in the wheelhouse uh, for teams as far as the difficulty that you want to have it be. But barring being a subject matter expert in literally everything, you're going to have those misses. And you just kind of take them on the chin. You chuckle with the teams. Um, you know, if you miss high and, you know, a question that you thought was 50% ends up being, you know, 90% or a social because you wrote such an obvious clue that you were the only person in the room that didn't pick up on how obvious the clue was, uh, you laugh it off and, and vice versa. Uh, if you play it really, really hard because you didn't know any better and asking, you know, the name of the seventh most famous uh, person to play this particular operatic role or what have you um, was way more obscure than you thought it was. Um, fuck it. There's another question in a minute. We'll forget it and move on. <laughs> so I will say one thing that I've actually found to be pretty useful when I get outside of my kind of comfort zone in an area, in a subject matter I don't know that much about and where I'm trying to gauge, 
you know, you something to use as a shorthand for how well known something is. I found like the Jeopardy archive is a useful tool for that. So it's at j-archive.org, I think, maybe .com. But it's basically an archive of every question minus a few episodes that have been lost that has ever been asked on Jeopardy. Oh, and I promise so, you I know about the archive. Okay, well, you know, not, I, maybe I don't know about Jay, but I, I use it super regularly. <laughs> I, I um, may have perused it uh, once or twice. Okay. Yeah, well, the greatest thing about it, uh, real quick, and not to cut you off, but the greatest thing about it is it has a nice search feature. So if I need to write mm -hmm. a question where um, I need to, for whatever reason, get the term uh, albatross in, and I just don't want to go with golf or the rhyme of the ancient mariner, I can just type albatross in and see what you know professional, actual good writers have done with that idea, and then go from there. Well, and it's one of those things where you're just like, okay, how well known, how well known is you know the birth of Venus by Botticelli? Because I'm you know if you're bad at art and you type it in and it pops up forty times in Jeopardy, you're like, oh, okay, this is a pretty famous painting. It probably is going to be pretty easy unless I you know gussy it up with something else. Um, whereas if you type in Botticelli Primavera on Jeopardy, you're probably only going to get like three or four responses and be like, okay, that's a more obscure painting by Botticelli. So if I need to ask a Botticelli question, you know, it gives me kind of my baselines of, all right, either make the Primavera question easier or make that birth of Venus question harder. Um, yeah, the sad thing I, is I've, I don't know if you're lying to me about Botticelli have a, having a painting named for pasta. I, that's how bad I know Renaissance art. Uh, yeah, Primavera. Yeah, it just it just it's just the Italian for spring. But yeah, I'd say it's probably his second most famous painting, okay. um, but significantly less famous than his most famous painting. Um, so, I think yeah, I, that jumped to mind because that was you know we had a fine arts question in our game last week, which is about Botticelli, and so our one point easy clue was Birth of Venus. Our two point clue was was uh, Primavera, and then our three-point clue, which I don't think anybody got, was he, he did an illustrated version of Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. Uh, and so that was probably too hard. Uh, yeah, it's actually ringing famous... a super vague bell, and I think it's because I'm a Dan Brown uh, novel nerd, and I know the Divine Comedy was part of one of his books in the last couple of years, so. He's mentioned it once or twice, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'll find there's, uh, there's some other resources that I use a lot too, uh, well, Google, obviously, but if I don't know a lot about a, you know, a subject, I can also go to Ranker, for instance, um, mm, yeah. and, you know, look at the um, top 100, uh, you know, Irish authors of all time or something like that, you know, and uh, just by looking at a list like that, that is crowdsourced, you can decide, well, okay, I'm not going to give them anything that's in the top 10, but maybe uh, doing something like, you know, the 11th through 20th would be a good kind of uh, sweet spot for questions. Um, I was fine with name that tune because it is, it's what my, my trivia audience loves the most is name that tune. And it is my weakest subject. If I'm <laughs> playing pub trivia and I'm doing name that tune, uh, I'm the guy doodling on the scorecard, you know, I've got no idea. So what I do for that is I go to, um, the hot 100 lists and you go mm. to the hot 100 and then you just pick a random week from a random year and then get somebody like, you know, maybe a couple entries down the list. That's absolutely perfect for recognition um but some difficulty too so those those are kind of some of my strategies too that i go with well those are both really solid ideas for whatever reason i never thought about using kind of the wisdom of the masses to figure out if something i was writing was knowledgeable or not um with the exception of occasionally i will look at like previous learned league questions and their get rates and write something kind of semi-adjacent to that if i find a sweet spot question uh, that I like, you know, a 60, 70% answer. I'll either reverse the question 
or um, kind of rephrase from a different entry point, uh, because obviously you don't want to take it in, and you shouldn't take it in whole cloth. But I am very much of the opinion that you can be inspired by quality questions to write quality questions. And I think that's the only case uh, that I can think of historically uh, where I've gone to a source that that gave me some kind of advanced heads up percentage on what the get rate should be, except for when I go to like Sporkle to do one of my mega sheep rounds or something. And I, and I expect to see these three answers very commonly. And then these really, really low answers that, you know, 5% of respondents on Sporkle got. And then all of a sudden I've got 15 players who gave that answer. Uh, hairs, back, neck, we've been over this. <laughs> I remember, yeah, your your sheep games are fun. I remember you did a question about, like, what are the ingredients in V8, which is just, I you know, because I'm a weirdo, I, I learned all of them a while ago. And I remember giving the answer watercress and being like, no one else is going to say watercress. No one knows that that's in V8. And it was the, by far, the most popular answer anybody gave. And I'm like, all right, some people went to the V8 page on Wikipedia here because that's, that's garbage. <laughs> like, yeah, but to be fair, too, I mean, as... As a trivia writer, I've I've come across that list so many times over the last decade that I think push comes to shove. I could have recalled Watercrest and thought the same thing you did, going, "Oh, this is going to be the really clever, you know, uh, smarty brain one." Yeah, one or like two or three people doing that, I could get half of them doing that. Yeah, you know, again. That said, I have found responses to prompts that have absolutely made those hairs stand up. Uh, not specifically that one, but. Several of them have absolutely made me second guess myself uh, in terms of do I know what people know as much as I thought I knew what people should know. Spoiler alert, don't fucking Google during live trivia. Yeah, <laughs> if only. <laughs> so um, is there really anything else that we kind of want to touch base on in terms of uh, difficulty and get rates as both writers and players, I feel like we covered most of the bases that we should, and there's probably some stuff underneath the stones uh, to kick up kind of a follow-up episode down the road. Uh, do you guys have any kind of last licks that you want to get in? Uh, any last-second questions you want to ask each other I mean, the, about? The one thing I will say is talking about reversing the difficulty. You know, one of the big things that we try and do in our games, it's kind of a conscious effort, because we're three white guys. You know, we have a, if left to our own devices, you know, we would default to white guy trivia. Um, you know, reversing the, the ask I have found to be a very effective way to craft questions about like marginalized groups or people mm -hmm. that would not necessarily, you know, most people would not be able to get a question on, you know, Louise Bourgeois or, uh, Berta Morisot or, you know, just naming female artists here, you know, um, Carol Walker, but you can, by reversing the ask and putting those people in the text of the question, craft an easier question that allows you to go outside of that kind of generally accepted canon, especially in those areas where the canon really is just white guys. Like classical music and fine arts are notorious for the canon just being white dudes. And it's one issue that we've run into on our mm -hmm. show a lot, which is that, you know, I have to be able, the way our our, our weekly show works, I have to be able to ask a one point question that most people are going to get. And for classical music, that rules out almost all female composers, most of the female like painters. And so one way to still ask about those folks is to, you know, put them in the clues themselves. So we're still teaching, you know, we're still referencing them, we're still talking about them. And then have, you know, so rather than having a question about, you know, Louise Bourgeois, 
uh, where she's the answer line, which mm-hmm. most teams would not be able to get. Instead, have a question about spiders, where we can make her the three-point clue because she's most well-known for this series of sculptures she did of spiders. Um, so I have found that that tactic is a way to to moderate the difficulty and yet still kind of bring in marginalized groups and, and keep them asked about in trivia, which is something that you know we've made an effort to do and I'm sure y'all have probably made an effort to do as well. Yeah, I find that helps a lot when, uh, especially in like geography questions where, you know, just to give a, a pretty basic style of question, you know, X is the capital of Y. If you're asking for the name of the capital, that is much harder to shotgun guess than it is giving the capital and asking teams to name the country with some geographic clues in there. So you can always, uh, if you find an easy question that you still like, uh, try flipping the ask uh, and see if you can lead people to the harder portion of it. And absolutely, as as Dan was saying, vice versa. Uh, the one other thing that I do uh, that I don't know that a lot of people do is I love running through a thesaurus uh, for questions. And if I think that there's no good way to make an easy question more medium, I'll just change the wording so much that you have to spend 40 seconds understanding what the hell I'm asking and kind of use the timer against you a bit. <laughs> I Yes, I remember running to those questions. It's just like, okay, I have to decipher what it is he means, and then it will become clear. But yeah, that's... I, I like that because it's a different kind of question, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's testing a different part of the person's brain than just, you know, can you recall this fact? So, you know, the more questions you can ask that kind of are more puzzle like, you know, that's, I, I generally tend to enjoy those more as a player than just the straight up, okay, what's the capital of Finland? Like trivial pursuit you style know? writing format. Yeah. Who's the fastest, who's got the fastest hundred yard time in history? You know, it's just like, okay, yeah. Everybody, yeah. you know, like for, a flash out of the blue, what famed Olympian, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, Jay, any parting thoughts? Yeah, I've, I've got a thought here. Um, I just want to say that it's also, it's definitely an acquired skill, you know, being able to write questions at a certain difficulty rate. Um, I just, while you guys were chatting, I opened up uh, the first ever round of trivia that I wrote. Um, this would have been five or six years ago. And uh, I'm absolutely embarrassed by it because all of the questions are either a 0% get rate or a 100% get rate um, because I clearly didn't know how to look up uh, <laughs> information and turn it into a, a palatable question for the masses. Um, so now when I write trivia questions, we're, we're looking at like between 50 and 70% get rate. I don't always hit that 65 I'm looking for, but uh, I usually get close. So um, I mean, anyone that's listening to the podcast that's just kind of starting out and having difficulty with this, just you'll get better at it for sure. Just look at other resources, look at what other people are doing. Um, and then like all of us trivia hosts do sit down and think way too much about it <laughs> and then you'll get good at it. But, uh, yeah, it, it comes with time for sure. Yeah. How did we go this entire discussion without bringing up the concept of, you know, play testers? Use them if you have them. Uh, get a friend, somebody who likes trivia, somebody who's not going to be actively participating in your game. Uh, find a community of like-minded trivia writers and say, hey, I have this round idea. I'm not sure how this is going to play. I want to run it by two or three of you. So at least I can kind of feel out where the edges are in terms of the hard questions and the easy questions. Um, never be afraid to do that. Never be afraid to ask somebody uh, their opinion because the worst case scenario is they're an asshole and you don't talk to them. But far more likely is that they're going to give you good feedback that allows you to grow and improve as a writer. And really, end of the day, if if y'all are listening to this episode, it's because you want to, if not be a better 
uh, trivia fan, uh, at the very least, understand the process by which a fair question become can become good and a good question hopefully can become great. And I hope that this conversation has definitely uh, led you into thinking about that. And by all means, if you have additional tips and tricks or follow-up questions, uh, don't hesitate to email us. We love hearing from you guys at quadriviapod at gmail.com for all your yelling at me needs. I was just going to say, yeah, I, I would echo that, that the more eyes that you can get on a question, the more the more you're just getting outside of your own head where, you know, because you know everything in your own head. That's one of the nice things about, you know, I write trivia with with a couple other people who, you know, we all take a look at the questions before we put them down and we have the opportunity to say, okay, I don't think this is as well known as you think it is, or mm-hmm. okay, this seems pretty darn easy for a two point clue. Um, and that, that kind of, the multiple perspectives, I think only makes questions stronger. Oh, without a doubt. And it's, Absolutely. it's one of the, the pities that I've had for years is I write in so much volume and I'm so, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, miserly about sharing the process of writing that I do pretty much all the work myself. And that comes with the pitfalls of, boy, did I underestimate how well people knew this song that I heard a bunch on the radio because I listened to a particular radio station in the mid 90s. Or my God, did I underestimate how many people watched this TV show I've only heard of the name of. Uh, yeah, get get outside opinions. You only know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. And that sounds recursive and minimalist as hell to say, but it's it's the harsh reality. Uh, gray area the edges of your knowledge by bringing in other people with different bubbles in that space, and you will find yourself uh, over a period of time learning more and writing better questions. And with that said, do you uh, do you guys feel like writing a question? As a matter of fact, I think we're about at that point in the show. I have a confession: I never learned to write, so uh, no. I can write a question. All right, how about you, Jay? You ready? Oh, I just told people that I thought that I'm kind of good at it, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a mistake, but yeah, okay. Oh, well, I think we're all going to find out together because it is time for this week's Keyword Challenge. Now, Jay, you've done one of these, Dan, you've done none of these, and I have done about 312 of these, so I'm going to take a moment and just uh, walk you and the listeners who somehow stumbled into us at episode 42 or so uh, into how this works. So one of our listeners, one of our friends, one of our fans has suggested a single word or phrase or name that they challenge us as professional writers ostensibly to uh, take some time and write the single most interesting, best, most creative question that we can around the same topic. It's it's an interesting thought exercise because you often see three different people from three different backgrounds and three different uh, philosophies of writing approaching the same subject in very, very different ways. Uh, and I am ready to find out what happens when the three of us try to do that, if you are. Gentlemen, are you ready for this week's keyword? Sure. Ready as I'll ever be. All right. Well, let's uh, thank Chuck Yu, who's actually been on this show before, uh, representing CU at Trivia, who is tasking us with writing a question where the word fiber ends up somewhere in the question or in the answer itself. It doesn't matter which uh, for Dan and Jay's uh, recollections. You can stick the word somewhere in the question. You can make it the answer. You can make it part of the answer. As long as the word fiber is key to the question, go nuts. Get creative. Uh, and let's yep. see what Seems you have. Like a perfectly regular prompt. <laughs> I don't have a better pun. So I'll just see you all uh, listeners on the other side of this 10 minute break. Don't go far. Hey, everyone. Jason here. 
While the host and I step away to think about our keyword challenge, we just wanted to remind you, you can check us out online at QuadriviaPod on Twitter. On Facebook, just search for Quadrivia Podcast. And you can always email us at quadriviapod at gmail.com. We're always happy to hear from you. And now, back to the show. And we are back, hopefully having written uh, two really good questions and then whichever one you're not going to vote for. We're going to find out together uh, in just a moment. Thank you again to Chuck, uh, Chuck, you over at CU at Trivia for providing this week's keyword, uh, which I did not hate with every fiber of my being as much as I (laughs) thought I would. Uh, Dan, you are new to this, and I think you've written six or seven trivia questions uh, in your life. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think eight's next week, so looking forward to it. Oh, I think eight was just right now. Let's find out what uh, you brought to the table. Uh, give us your best uh, effort at a question that has something to do with fiber. Yeah, I didn't know there was going to be, like, voting. Now I feel, you know, it's back to high school. It's a popularity contest again. I don't know. All right, well, let's see if I can be coined nerd king here. Um, <laughs> my question what name is given to the process by which wood is turned into cellulose fiber, the main component of paper? That name is shared by a notably successful sports team owner and can also be found in the name of a pioneering music group founded by Ralph Hutter and Florian Schneider. Oh, I want to I want to sit on this question for a second because you've given me three ins and I'm temporarily whiffing on all three i can't even like riff on the whiff at this point uh i told you i'm bad at music so i can't help you there i didn't reveal this earlier but i'm awful at sports um (laughs) and although i've used paper before (laughs) i don't know a lot about how it's made already Um, i feel the votes turning against me no (laughs) no this is this is a solid one for sure because it's making us think there's no like pavlov on this uh unless you really know the paper making process i would say um, or I can not even the paper making process. Like. It goes, yeah, previous to that. Um, I don't think it's craft work. I'll tell you that. But I'm looking at these names and they sound very like German, Austrian, Central European. So I'm trying to think it's not going to be like KMFDM. It's not going to be craft work. I'm almost certain it's not Millie Vanilli. Uh, Jay, any thoughts on pioneering German music groups? Um, well, I mean, could it be craft work? Um, like if you've got, um, these are, Oh, German you know names, what? Right? God damn it. I think it is. I was, I was like shit posting on that. But now that I read that second clue, that name is shared by a notably successful sports team owner. That's that, that could be Robert Kraft of the Patriots. And then you've got, uh, yeah. Craft paper. I could, I could see this coming together. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't feel super confident on the science portion of this, but the other two clues make a lot of sense now that I, kind of rift through them um jay would you would you go with me if i said i don't have anything better than craft work on this i'll go all the way man all right tan what are we talking about here well i yeah i would probably give you credit for this it is the craft process k-r-a-f-t um and so it, yeah it's it's in the name of craft work and it's shared by robert Kraft. ah uh, yeah so i just i process. glanced right over the can be found in aspect okay I'm, um, I'm sure you could have put some sort of like macaroni dish in as well there, maybe. That, that yeah, might have originally, originally when I typed it, it had like mac and cheese and Grey Poupon <laughs> and a bunch of Kraft Heinz stuff in it. I switched it to Robert Kraft at the last second. I mean, um, to be fair, you are asking a bona fide Canadian. Uh, so maybe leaving the Kraft dinner reference out is a good idea <laughs> to get the get rate that you want. <laughs> 
Well, it was funny listening to your thought process and you being like, well, it's not craft work. And it's just like, oh, okay, well, this is going to be an interesting <laughs> discussion then. Well, when I was thinking craft work, I was thinking like the opposite end of, you know, turning paper into a thing instead of turning something yeah. into paper or, you know, the constituent component of paper. I'm like, well, paper is involved in craft work, but it's kind of involved in the wrong direction. Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah. But if you ever see like that, that like really crappy brown butcher paper that, you know, they give you in like elementary school as paper towels and which absorbs no liquid whatsoever. Mm -hmm. That's called craft paper. That's basically just wood pulp with nothing else done to it. And then you can make better paper products by doing other things. But and, yeah. and to be clear, so, that's craft with a K with as a K. opposed yeah. to like when you hear the phrase craft paper, you're thinking of something that you're going to turn into like origami or, or something. Huh? Okay. Uh, I, I like the question, Dan, I think you've, you've written a really good one here, especially in our uh, conversation about difficulty, uh, because as Jay admitted, not a music guy, I am a bit of a music guy, which is why I even thought the name Kraftwerk might come up in one sense. Uh, and then it had that ability to kind of independently verify without knowing the specific nucleus under which the, the question was, I forgive the terrible pun, but crafted. <laughs> <laughs> I like well, it. I give it that. a solid, I, I give it a solid, like B minus. Good job. Okay. It was one box of macaroni from perfection, uh, but pretty close. So Jay answer this for me because I have never been to Canada, but I am a big bare naked ladies fan. What the hell is craft dinner? <laughs> what is craft dinner? What isn't craft dinner? Um, well, it's just macaroni. Yeah. But you can put hot dogs in it and then you can really, uh, you can really up the ante that way. Um, we also have uh, spicy craft dinner. We've got uh, the regular craft dinner. You can get cauliflower craft dinner. But it uh, is like essentially literally just macaroni and cheese that you lie to the world and tell is a full meal in and of itself. <laughs> uh, mostly, yes, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know how it's uh, it's it's okay to just sit down and eat a box of craft dinner, but uh, we got away with it, and I'm glad we did. Oh no! Like Americans said, will absolutely just sit down and eat like a bowl of macaroni and cheese. We just don't delude ourselves when we do it. It's a shameful thing. <laughs> yeah, it sounds much worse when you say you're having craft dinner. It's just uh, sounds a little quirky. Doesn't sound uh, like you're. Um, I don't. Know, doesn't sound as awful as mac and cheese. I guess. Uh, yeah. Speaking of uh, Canadian content, Jay, you have some for us on this uh, question, don't you? Um. Yeah. Do I have some CanCon in here? I think uh, maybe a little bit. Anyway, so let, let me get into my question here. So um, what I tried to do here is kind of like I was talking about the uh, Michelin question earlier. Mm. took kind of something that I learned recently that I found interesting. Maybe not everyone's going to find it interesting, but I did. Um, and then tried to turn it into a trivia question, but then had to modify it a bit to make it a little more approachable to people that aren't familiar with the, uh, the subject matter here. So you can be the judge. We'll see. So Toslink, a weird outlier in the world of audio and video, was first created by Toshiba, as in Toshiba Link, and is the only time most AV nerds like myself use a fiber optic cable. Toslink, uh, Toslink uses nothing but light to connect AV equipment and is based off of the SPDIF interface created by what two other electronics companies? There are so many words I recognize in this question, and I would find myself spending three minutes just listing electronics companies and going, eh, maybe, eh, maybe. <laughs> uh, like, and I'm blanking on the name for this, but I know that I have had uh, AV equipment like home 
entertainment equipment that has used a fiber optic audio connection in the last couple of years. Is that the same thing as Toslink or is that something different? I just don't recall the name of that interface. No, that is Toslink. Um, and that's the, the bit of interesting trivia that I found recently is that this is, this is the only time that that's really been used um, in the world of AV is uh, you'd think fiber optics, you got light, you can carry lots of data. Uh, and Toshiba kind of did it once and then no one has done it again. Hmm. So, and hmm. there's uh, some history behind that that I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, <laughs> a month or two ago, I watched some YouTube content about it and found it quite interesting. Oh, I just had a light bulb moment on this. Uh, Dan, are you looking at that acronym SPDIF the way I am? Yeah, so I know what that acronym stands for. So I, yeah, I, I know what the answer to that one is. Yeah, but... it's it's now, I think that I could backronym this to something like Sony Philips Digital Interface or something. And I believe that is exactly what it stands for, yes. Woohoo! Yeah, that's correct. So the two companies here we're looking for are Sony and Philips. Um, so I tried to lead the player in this direction um, by saying, you know, Toshiba, Toss, Link. So hopefully you guys picked up on that and thought, well, SP, that's got to be two companies. One starts with S, one starts with P. What are they? So uh, I don't know. I like that uh, this question that I threw together kind of uh, takes some really um, specific AV knowledge, this kind of difficult looking question. But in the end, really, it's uh, what are two companies? What, what makes sense to be the salt and pepper <laughs> of electronics? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I like that it, it it rewards somebody who reads the question carefully. Like if you if you fo if you notice that acronym and you think about it, it you got a pretty decent chance of of getting the answer on this one. So yeah, definitely rewards uh, deep reading and also having the kind of uh, puzzly mentality that you were mentioning earlier, uh, where you look at a thing and your thought process goes, well, you know, maybe the answer is kind of hidden in plain sight. Mm -hmm. Not really solid one there, Jay. I like it. Um, I would give you uh, the Canadian A on that, which is really just a thought. It's not even a grade. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, on that note, I'm ready to move on with my question if you guys are. Uh, and I am happy to say that we went three very, very different directions on the same keyword. So I love when that happens. So here is mine. By removing the first letter of a popular quote from a beloved 1984 coming of age film, you get what proper term for a very particular type of fiber that frequently ends in something known as a telodendron. Now, this type of fiber notably doesn't touch its neighbors in typical circumstances, so mind the gap. Okay, I'm thinking there's some hints in here that are just going way over my head. Um, oh, maybe. I got it. I got it. <laughs> That's, I like it. Yeah, I will admit I wrote this to to at least make you think a little bit without having any uh, connection to like, oh, I know telodendron equals blank, you know? Well, it's one that of those, was a legitimate concern out... that went through my head uh, as I was writing this, but I also wanted to include it because it makes me look smart and fancy. Yeah, kind of my process is if you can figure out generally what that's talking about and then go through the parts of that and then back solve with the quote, that's kind of what confirmed it for me. Uh, any thoughts on this one, Jay, before uh, Dan takes some thunder on it? No, I'm leaving it to Dan. The so best I, teams I, usually do. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I'm the guy doodling on the scorecard right now. Take it away, Dan. So I believe the, the movie in question is going to be The Karate Kid and the quote will be Wax On and he's asking about an axon. Yep, that is indeed correct. And acts on the proper term for uh, the nerve fiber that is found in your nervous system. Ooh, I like it. Yeah, I like it. Tell yeah, a dendron in just to, to make sure that you had some kind of 
uh, theoretical connection to, you know, science or anatomy and physiology, just so you can pin down, because I'm very vaguely saying that it's a type of fiber, but it's not the type of fiber that a lot of people associate with the word fiber. I will say that this question does, uh, I can't remember if it was Jason or, or Dan, if you brought this up earlier, but uh, this was a question that I got wrong. I had no idea. But now that I've seen the answer and I see wax on, I get that, oh, moment, um, which I think makes this an excellent question. Yeah, I was able to fit two stupid pun clues in there, which is <laughs> really just peak me, let's be honest. And the thing I like about it also is something that frequently ends in something known as a telodendron. And then if you, telo just means ending. So that word just means ending dendron. Uh, and a dendron is a, is a nerve, or dendrite, or dendron is a nerve fiber. So that's one word. Knowing a little bit of Greek helps you. Yeah, it definitely gets you to that same thought space where the word dendrite might come to mind, which is the other half of a synapse or, or gap uh, that axons communicate to. So um, some moving parts here. Uh, I spent 10 minutes on it, so feel free to rip it apart. Uh, I like it though. I'm, I'm, I'm not disappointed in my work on this one. I will say that much. No, I like those questions where you, you know, you kind of, you can use knowledge to get to a, a universe of possible answers and then you can kind of like, all right, you know, dendrite doesn't make any sense for the quote at, you know, nucleon doesn't make any sense for the quote axon hold on okay wax on that actually works that that must be what it is i like those kind of back solvable or back confirmable questions mm -hmm. yeah i think a lot of really good questions have that kind of built in it's not necessary but it definitely helps and if you can you know show some personality in the writing through those connections uh more power to you so before we reveal uh before we announce where people can vote for these, Jay, you had said during the break that you had a question kind of pre-written for a previous game that had to do with fibers and sat exactly at the get rate that you wanted, uh, I, going back to our roundtable discussion on I difficulty. Do, yeah. Um, so yeah, during the break, I just took a look through my, my database, maybe looking for inspiration, maybe looking to cheat on the assignment a little bit, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I found one uh, from a couple of weeks ago that uh, had a 65% get rate, which is what I aim for in my trivia shows. Um, and it happened to contain the word fiber. So uh, I'll run this one by you guys quick. Uh, so this was from a round called Weird National Days. So November 15th celebrates what fiber-filled breakfast favorite of any person or lumberjack looking to prevent constipation and feel regular. Coincidentally, it was what sturdy Danny McGee saw up his 59th tree. And this, this sounds very much like CanCon to me. Is Sir Danny <laughs> McGee a Canadian thing? <laughs> I'm looking it up now. I think it must be. Okay. All right. Well, I see Lumberjack note. and sturdy Danny McGee, and I'm like, ah, good, my Achilles heel, CanCon. <laughs> I, I think so that you finally get on the board at a Smarty Pints uh, CanCon question, Dan. I'm going to leave this to you. Take a stab at it. He's thinking hard over there. Yeah, he is. Well, yeah, I'm just, you know, um... I'm trying to think if there's something that rhymes with McGee or tree that I can, because that's basically my other than that. It's just like, what do you eat for breakfast? It's got fiber in it. And that doesn't, there's a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah. My only thoughts for what it's worth are going to like particular cereals, like checks or, or not, not checks, not Wheaties. What's the other one that's a lattice. That's just going to go right through you. Crispix. I... Yeah. Something like the muselix. Muse. Yeah. Muesli is a thing. Well, muesli does rhyme with McGee and tree. Oh, yeah. I guess it does, if you pronounce it correctly, like I didn't. Yeah, sure. Why not muesli? <laughs> that was fun to watch you guys work through it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but no, uh, you're, you're giving me way too much credit. This is Raisin Bran. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, that answer is broken. Well, I listen. I I'm still batting negative a thousand on CanCon, so I've I've preserved my my perfect record. You you were on brand at least, uh, raising yeah. brand though it may be, but you were on brand. <laughs> <laughs> consistent, consistent. Well, now that we've talked about Canadian breakfast cereal and and brought Dan to task, I think it's time to bring all of us to task, listeners, by voting for your favorite of our three questions, which you can do uh, as this episode releases at the website quadriviapodcast.com or any of the 15 other stupid URLs that Corey has uh, registered for us by the time this episode airs. I know we have quadriviabuttface.net. We have weneedanoutro.org, I think. Um, yeah, Corey is an interesting animal, Dan, if you haven't experienced him. And I do recommend that you don't. Yeah, I can't say I've had the pleasure. Uh, but let's let's focus back on you, Dan, our special guest in a uh, episode all about difficulty and a format that you have co uh, come up with in a sense that that leans into the concept of question difficulty. Do you have a, a 10 question game for us to, to put a pin on this episode? I do. Yeah. And so what I did was kind of go back through some of our old uh, past games and it's going to be 10 questions in kind of the PQB format that we do. And so every question will have a single question that it's asking for and a single answer that it wants. Uh, And then each question will be followed by three clues. The first clue is supposed to be difficult. If you get it on that, then it's worth three points. The second clue is a medium clue. If you get it on that, it's worth two. And the last clue is kind of the easy clue. If you get it after that, it's worth one. In our game, generally speaking, once you guess at a question, you either get the points or you're done for the question. So if you take a shot on three points and miss it, you don't get credit if you know it after the two or the one point answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the idea is to kind of do 10 of those. Uh, I'll I'll read kind of the clues and then I think pause a little bit after each one to give people some time to think. Um, And then maybe at the end of the question... I don't know if y'all want to discuss kind of like, do you know it? When did you know it? You know, what kind of gave it away for you? Um, that might be one way to, to kind of talk through it. Yeah, I think Jay and I can kind of talk through it in that, you know, kind of built in 30 second window, if that's good with you sure. and if that's good that with Jay. That works for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's do it as people would do it, as it were. All righty. So your first question, name the Greek letter. In the na- that is present in the names of the following. So looking for a Greek letter. Okay. For three points, the band behind the 1984 song Big in Japan and Jean-Luc Godard's 1965 sci-fi neo-noir about a fictional city. Uh, neither of those, Jay, are ringing a bell to me at the moment. I'm, I'm trying to run through bands that I can think of that have Greek letters in their name. Nothing's... Mm. Nothing with confidence yet at three. I don't think we'd be locking in at the three-point level, but I am feeling like it's potentially earlier in the Greek alphabet than later. Uh, let's find out how wrong I am when Dan reveals the two-point clue. Yeah, let's right, go the, for two. The two-point clue. The Google-owned DeepMind artificial intelligence programs that have predicted protein structure and mastered the board game Go. Oh, I'm, I'm leaning towards alpha now. Jay, is that ringing a, a bell for you at all? That sounds right. Um, going through the, the rest of the Greek alphabet as quickly as I can think of, and nothing else is leaping out at me. I would 
I would venture a guess at Alpha at two points. Yeah, I'm feeling good about Alpha. All right, so we'll lock in uh, with Alpha at two points. If you want to reveal the one-point clue, uh, and then we'll find out how right or wrong we were. All right, for one point, the closest star system to Earth and the highest-ranking individual in an animal community. Okay, yeah, I feel a lot I, better I about Alpha, Alpha now, yeah. <laughs> Alpha yeah, Centauri so, yeah. and, you know, an Alpha male, um, which apparently exists, but not in wolves. That is correct. Yeah, the what we're looking for is Alpha here. The one-point clue is pointing towards, as you said, Alpha Centauri and just the Alpha animal. Uh, the two programs we're talking about in, in the two-point clue are called Alpha Fold and Alpha Go. Uh, they're both, you know, if we threw in Google as a bit of a clue there because Alphabet is their parent company, and that might help you uh, kind of surmise oh. that Alpha might be. Oh, right. There might have been a subconscious connection there. But I think I've heard and, of AlphaGo, so yeah, AlphaGo got pretty famous because it actually it was the first program to actually beat a human master in the game Go, um, which a lot of people thought couldn't be done for a very long time, and then it mm. did it. Uh, and the three-point clue, both of those are are named AlphaVille. Uh, oh, AlphaVille's okay. a German band that did big in Japan, and John Luc Godard's uh, movie about a fictional city is AlphaVille. Uh, what I'll say about that is that Alphaville's Big in Japan is a total bop and people should listen to it because it's a good song. <laughs> yeah, I, even with my, you know, better than the average bears uh, knowledge of 80s music, that was not ringing a bell for me. Yeah, Alphaville, they're a German band. They had basically two songs. They did the the Forever Young. Uh, you want to be forever young? Do you want to be forever young? Uh, they did that and then they did Big in Japan. Those were basically the only things that hit the charts in the States. Okay. So. Now, that Forever Young you were singing, has that been covered recently, or is it just, like, been used in something? Because it's ringing a strong recent bell for me. It may uh, have been. If it has, I don't know about okay. it, but I can't say it hasn't. We'll leave it to an exercise to the listeners to correct me via email. All right. So that was question number one. Uh, you want to hear question number two? Yeah, bring it. All right. For question number two, uh, name the athlete described below. For three points... In 1996, she married fellow athlete Bart Connor. I have some guesses as to athletes who would be notable um, in the 90s, Jay, but nowhere near enough to throw a guess on it. No, uh, like, quote unquote, specific. celebrity marriages are not strong in my wheelhouse. I can eliminate a couple options, but there are still just, for me, too many possibilities based on the, the information we have. So I would definitely be waiting for the two point clue personally. Yeah, me too here. All right. For two points, her most notable feat was misrepresented by Omega SA, who could not properly acknowledge it. Okay, this is leading me, Jay, to something in track and field. Omega SA being a, uh, like, timing company, I think. I think they're one of the companies that puts out, like, the chronometers that you find at, like, track and field events. Although it could be something in tennis at, like, a fastest serve Mm -hmm. kind of thing um i can think of too many plausible tennis or track and field stars still so i i i wouldn't venture a guess here personally no i'm just doodling i told you sports <laughs> can't do it oh this is great <laughs> uh hit us with a one pointer and see if it it, right. it locks it in Dan. yeah for this might get you on the right track here for one point she achieved the first 10.0 score in gymnastics at the 1976 Summer Olympics. Ah, I wasn't even in the right ballpark. Is that? Oh, yeah. Now, I guess Omega did the uh, scoreboards for for uh, the 76 Olympics. That would be Nadia Comaneci. 
It would be Nadia Comaneci, yes. It's, yeah, famously the Omega board could not register a 10.0 because it didn't have the, the space for mm -hmm. the third number. So it just showed a 0, 0.0 when she got her perfect score. Yeah, and uh, I knew that too. And I had the subconscious Omega shows numbers on boards at sporting events and didn't put those two pieces of information together. I, For me, the 96 threw me off because I wasn't thinking somebody who was a famous athlete 20 years earlier than that. I was thinking an active at the time athlete. So, oh yeah, that one, you know, if you know who Bart Connor is, it's somewhat helpful. He was an American gymnast. He won two gold medals at the 1984 Olympics when we kept all of the Soviets out. Okay. Uh, and, and he basically, he met Nadia Comaneci back in 1976. And then after she defected in the late eighties, uh, they were on a talk show together in 89. Then they kind of had a long-term distance relationship. They started a, a training facility together in Oklahoma and got married oh, okay. back in 96. So, you know, she started competing when she was 14. So in 96, you know, she was still only, you know, uh, 34. 34, like mid-30s, but, yeah. But, but by that time, long retired from competitive gymnastics. Yeah, the name Bart Connor was was something I had heard before and could have thrown a guess that he was an athlete, but I couldn't possibly have told you what or when. Yeah, he's not one of the more famous, I would say, American Olympians. I mean, he won two gold medals, but again, it was one we wouldn't let the Soviets play. So, you know, they're <laughs> the default Olympics gold medal, of 84. But, yeah, but but yeah, the gymnastics in the 80s was all about the Soviets. So. All right, I'm good for number three, Jay, uh, if you are as well. Yeah, let's take a look here. All right, for number three, name the nationality of the following writers. For three points, the author of the play Life of Galileo, and hint, it's not Italian. I have never heard of the play Life of Galileo, unfortunately. Uh, Jay, I don't know if you have. No, definitely not. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to think this is not going to be the most common nationality, like presumably not like Western European, but again, nothing to say at three points. No, I'm, right. I'm ready for two. For two points, the author of the novel Death in Venice, and hint, it's still not Italian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was cleverly done. I can't say I'm familiar with Death in Venice either. Um, also not familiar over here. Yeah, uh, and I, I've played a PQB Live game before, so I know the feeling where you're staring at this for like 30 seconds, and you're like, I... I don't even know how to narrow it down from here, except for to take out. It's probably not like Laotian. Um, it is not Laotian. I can't yeah. confirm. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, your one-point clue. The playwright who created the Sturm und Drang literary movement. Makes me think German, but I don't remember the name associated with Sturm und Drang, except for that that's a thing that exists. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm in the same boat. I know it's German. But I can't give you any other information. I mean, uh, in the absence of a better clue, do you want to say German and hope that it's a one-point clue in the sense of a one-point clue? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll go German. Yeah, it's a one-point clue. It's not trying to trick you. Right. Yeah, it is German. Um, yeah, the, 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 the important thing isn't the playwright. The guy who created it is called, is named Friedrich Maximilian von Klinger. But it's, you know, just that Sturm und Drang is a, is a fairly famous German literary movement. Right. Um, the two-pointer there is referring to Thomas Mann, okay. uh, who did The Magic Mountain, and I'd say Death in Venice is probably his other really famous book. And then Life of Galileo is one of the better-known uh, plays by Bertolt Brecht. So that's, I have that's heard the name one. Bertolt Brecht, but I couldn't tell you anything beyond that there was a guy who wrote stuff named Bertolt Brecht. 
All right, keep poking holes in my knowledge base with number four. <laughs> All right, for number four, name the film described below. Uh, for three points, parts of its score were misappropriated for the 2011 film The Artist, leading to a lawsuit. I never saw The Artist, so I can't yeah. throw a guess on it. Jay, uh, you do movie trivia a lot more and better than I do. Have you seen The Artist? Are you familiar with its score? No, no, I'm not familiar at all. Um, I'm just trying to think of if I've ever heard of, uh, well, just a score being uh, misappropriated, like you're saying. Um, like my joke answer is Purple Rain because P was the artist, but that's not right. That can't possibly be right. I'm, I'm looking for that two-point clue at this point. Yep, I would agree. All right, for two points. Its female lead, played by Kim Novak, habitually visits the portrait and grave of Carlotta Valdez. Anything, Jay? Ooh, I, I've still got nothing to go on. Because I, I am notoriously shit at movie trivia, and I can't get Kim Cattrall out of my head because you said Kim Novak, and they're probably different people. I can confirm they are different people, yeah. I appreciate that hint. Um, uh, yeah, no, this is this is very not my wheelhouse, so let's, uh, let's go for the one-pointer. All right, for one point, introduce the camera technique known as the dolly zoom to simulate its protagonist's fear of heights. There it is. Okay. Yeah, that clue definitely got me there. Um, Jay, did that get it for you? Yeah, this has got to be Vertigo, right? Yeah, no, that's indeed. absolutely what I'm thinking. <laughs> Vertigo is correct. Yeah, so the dolly zoom is the technique where the camera is physically moved backward while zooming, while the lens zooms forward. It's, mm -hmm. it's the famous scene, like when Jaws, Chief Brody right? sees the kid get yeah. eaten in Jaws. That's the that's a dolly zoom. And that's the uh, the the zoom that you see as uh, he's going up the clock tower, right? Or yes. Down, yeah. Or, as he's looking yeah. down, yeah, it's got that weird effect. Uh, yeah, at, where he's looking at the stairs. Uh, and then, yeah, the one point, or the three point clue. So Kim Novak, after the artist came out, she took out a full page ad in Variety in which she called the unauthorized use of about four minutes of the Vertigo score in the artist rape, which was not wow. a great look. Yeah. No, um, very much isn't. Basically, whoever was word. editing the film had used the Vertigo track as like kind of placeholder music. And then Michael Hasanovicius, who, who directed it, liked it so much, he just kept it in and paid a licensing fee. And Kim Novak was not happy about that at all. Okay, well, Upshot, at least they paid for it. Yep. I mean, so it's 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 purely an artistic and, like, personal opinion as opposed to, like, a legal situation, thankfully. Yep. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I don't think they ended up winning that lawsuit, if I remember correctly, but... Uh, all right. All right, I'm feeling Question humbled. Let's do five. Well, well, here, so here's the thing. The way we write this game, you know, the, the, we want the three pointers to be legitimately pretty difficult. And mm -hmm. so especially for two people playing alone, you know, versus people playing on like a team of five or six, you know, it's it's no shame to be getting these on one or two points um, that, you know, the three pointers really are meant to just get, you know, have a have a few teams get those, I think. Oh, for sure. Uh, but for those teams who do know it, it's like, a, oh, shoot, I got a three pointer. That's awesome. It's almost like a bonus point then. Yep, mm -hmm. almost. All right, uh, number five. Name the historical vessel described below. For three points, is the vessel most associated with Joseph Cinque? C-I-N-Q-U-E. I have some guesses on historical vessels just in general, but the, the Joseph... And 
I'm, I'm curious because I'm bad at pronoun pronouncing things, almost criminally so. I would have pronounced that sonk. It, it's it Sinkay, may though. be pronounced sonk. Uh, okay. You know, that's why I spelled it out. I'm not Fair necessarily enough. the. I am by no means trying to bring you to task. I'm genuinely curious if that's correct or if I'm just associating it with a word that's spelled the same kind of thing. It entirely it, it, it's entirely based on which language group it's in. If it's French, it's pronounced sonk. If it's Spanish or Portuguese, it's pronounced sinke. Fair, fair. Um, yeah. The important thing is, I don't know. Yeah, I've got I've got no clue on this one. All right. For two points, caused John Quincy Adams to make an impassioned speech before the Supreme Court in the 1840s. Ooh, at least we're narrowing down to a year now. Caused JQA to make a speech before the Supreme Court in the 1840s. Uh, so this isn't going to be like the main. It's not going to be the Lusitania. We're going earlier than that because we kind of have to. Uh Oh, okay. Maybe. I have a guess that I'm not incredibly confident on, Jay. Uh, yeah, what's, your, what's your thought, thought here? is maybe the HMS Beagle. The timeline is close enough, but I'm really uncomfortable saying that for two points. Well, this is, uh, this is not the Canadiana <laughs> round. So, uh, yeah, I don't think I'm much help here. Um... You sure it's not like the Edmund Fitzgerald? No. All right, yeah, let's fire away at the one-point clue. Yeah. All right, for one point, was the site of a July 1839 slave revolt later dramatized in a Steven Spielberg film? Good thing we didn't lock in it, too. Okay. Yeah, and now it, the piece with the JQA connection is coming together. Um, if you had, Anthony Hopkins played him in the movie. If yeah, I if you had asked it the other way around and given the name of the vessel and asked for the president associated i probably could have gotten that but to do it the other way around uh jay do you know this or no 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 i don't think i do uh i'm pretty sure he's talking about the amistad it is indeed la amistad yeah uh joseph sonk or Sinke, whichever it is uh was the leader of the revolt on the ship and john quincy adams uh, represented the 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 revolters the 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 ship passengers before the supreme court and was ultimately successful uh in arguing that they were not property yeah, definitely needed the one-point clue on that. But that's okay. Uh, Jay, how yep. are you feeling about this half so far? We are doing <laughs> points. Uh, what, we have five points? Uh, I six, I think. I think six. we got the two-pointer for Alpha, and we've one-pointed everything else. I'm just sitting here waiting for those uh, half-point clues. There you go. <laughs> All right, what do you have for us for number six, Dan? All right. Uh, question six. Give the adjective that appears in the names of the following. Uh, for three points, the largest annual tournament for the video game Dota 2, which has a prize pool of over $30 million. Ooh, I don't know this at all for sure, but I'm thinking it's gonna be something like grand or ultimate. It's gonna be one of those superlative adjectives. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm searching my memory banks. I do know some things about games. Uh, I've never actually played Dota. But, yeah, uh, I was really excited when I heard him say video game, and then he said Dota. Yeah, I, I agree. It's got to be something like Ultimate, uh, Supreme. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm ready for a, I'm, I'm pumped for a second clue now. I think we can Yeah, I, 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 more confidence than in the last few questions going into the two-pointer. Let's see if it locks in. Mm -hmm. All right, for two points, 
the shade of orange used to color the Golden Gate Bridge and some NASA spacesuits. Ooh. Shade of orange. Um, Burnt sounds wrong. And I've, you know, I've, I've done a couple of questions in the last few months about the Golden Gate Bridge. So I've seen this color on like their Wikipedia entry, but I cannot recall it. And I don't think it'd be like giant now because the giants didn't move until well after the Golden Gate Bridge was finished. So uh, let's let's see that old one pointer, I think. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to figure this out uh, at two. All right. For one point, a worldly breakfast oriented restaurant chain that briefly changed one of the letters in its name to a B in 2018. You know, international does make sense uh, as you look back. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I'm pretty sure pancakes is not an adjective. Um, my English teacher from middle school, please confirm that, uh, Jay <laughs> international sound good. International is sounding pretty damn good. Yeah. International is correct. Yes. The, 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 the Dota two tournament is just called, I think the international and features a ludicrous amount of prize money for a game that I think nobody plays except for like professional Dota two players. <laughs> I've never <laughs> met anybody who actually plays that game recreationally. And then yes, international orange is the, the color of the golden gate bridge and the spacesuits, which was chosen because it's, it theoretically stands out against backgrounds. So planes are less likely to fly into it and, and people can spot people in spacesuits of that color in space. I mean, there's only 12.8 million people following Dota two on Twitch, a channel that you are on Dan again people love to watch other people play Dota 2 I've never met anybody who actually played it is the thing ah okay I, I see what you're saying yeah um it's one of those MOBAs and I'm trying to think of uh what the more popular one is these days League of Legends I think that's the one yeah yeah all right yeah, number so seven that, and so we if we want to talk about like you know and this might be a good time to talk about uh, difficulty fails. This entire round might be a difficulty fail, uh, you know, according to some listening to it. We originally had that as like the two-point clue because one of our writers is a big video game person and was just like, oh, everybody knows this tournament. It's mm, really popular. Yeah. It's got a $30 million prize pool. And the, the other two of us just like, uh, no. I mean, <laughs> very popular in a very niche subject. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those where like if you follow video, like esports and video games, you're going to instigate that. Right. But if you don't, you're just like, oh. Good. <laughs> Electronic. All right. Uh, for question number seven, name the insect described below. For three points, provides the name of the criminal alter ego of Batman villain Garfield Lynn. Oh, this is not one of the rogues that I am familiar with. I'm just trying to run them through my head. Uh, Insect-based... I know there's the Mad Hatter, but I don't think there was a caterpillar in Batman's canon. Are you are you a Batman stan at all, Jay? Uh, not as much as I wish I was right now. Um, oh, okay. I think I got it. I think I got it for three points. Oh, what, what are you thinking? I think it's Firefly. There is absolutely a, a Batman villain named Firefly. Unfortunately, uh, the most I know about that character outside of the Gotham series is from the TV show Gotham, where the character is portrayed by like... Uh, a teenage, like 18 year old woman. So the name is throwing me off from the comics, but there is absolutely a somewhat well-known Garf, uh, Garfield, uh, Batman villain named Firefly, which last I checked is an insect. <laughs> that much right, we sounds know. Like, yeah. Sounds like you're locked um, in for two or for three. Uh, yeah, Jay, let's go for it. Yeah, let's, let's, let's ride the dragon. Uh, three points for Firefly. All right, your two point clue. 
appears in the title of a super depressing 1988 anime film set near the end of World War II. Is that I, I, Grave of the Fireflies? Is that a thing? Sounds right. I mean, I don't know if that confirms or denies anything, but I could back solve the name of something that sounds like a movie from that era. That sounds depressing as hell. All right, well, let's go ahead and hear the one-point clue where all will be revealed. Uh, for one point, titles the unjustly canceled 2002 Firefly. Space Western You had me at unjustly, yeah. yeah. Starring Nathan Fillion as Malcolm Reynolds. And yes, it is Firefly. Your, your three clues there are... Uh, yes, the, the TV show Firefly, Grave of the Fireflies, you are absolutely correct, is the anime film. It's every, it's a film that, you know, every film buff watches exactly once. Um, and then, yeah, Garfield Lynn plays Firefly, a man who flies and set things on fire. So, you know, truth and <laughs> advertising. Uh, fair enough. Uh, really good one there. He says, having gotten three points on it. <laughs> it's funny how that works. I was going to be um, really mad if you didn't make a Firefly TV show connection, though. So good on yeah. you. It, I did it not have to it. yell at you for uh, not including the most important firefly in the history of fires fly. Glad I could help. <laughs> uh, all right. Your eighth question. Um, and this is one of those where the three point clue is, I think we had one team get it when we did it, but it was an interesting enough fact that I was just like, oh, I kind of want to ask about this. So name the body of water described below for three points is home to the only true freshwater seal in the world, which is named for it, and seal being like the animal, hmm. a seal. That is interesting. And seals sound Canadian. Jay, take it. <laughs> um, take it back. Uh, um, <laughs> well, I don't think they'd call it a great bear seal. <laughs> that sounds like two animals instead of one. Um, uh, let's, let, let's go. The other option sounds even worse. Yep. So <laughs> note, we didn't say the thing that you're all thinking, uh, two points. Let's see what you got. All right. For two points contains approximately 23% of the world's fresh surface water more than any other lake and is not the Caspian sea. Is this, Ooh, so I have a couple thoughts in mind here, Jay. One would be Lake Superior but I'm not super confident on that. The other one would be Lake Baikal. I am almost positive it's Baikal. Um, and where I'm going with this is, uh, I maybe I'm misremembering, but uh, I did a Groundhog's Day trivia round uh, a little while ago, um, and it was the lakes and rivers question, and it sounds very familiar to this fact I'm hearing now. Um, so I... I'd like, be confident I, locking that in. I know that Lake Baikal is considered the deepest lake in the world, so it stands to reason. The question just becomes, is there more total volume of water in the width of Superior than there is in the depth of Baikal? And if I remember right, Baikal is not a particularly small footprinted lake. I think we take the stab at Baikal. Yeah, I'm feeling good about it. All right. And your one point clue is located in Russia and is the deepest lake in the world. Well, there we go. I feel much better about it that you've confirmed the thing that we said. It is indeed Lake Baikal. Lake Baikal contains more fresh water than all of the American Great Lakes put together. No kidding. Uh, okay. Yeah, 23% of the American Great Lakes come out to about 22%. Uh, and weirdly, if you... This is kind of counterintuitive, but if you combine the water in every river on Earth at any given point... It would, it would account for just 2% of the fresh water on Earth, whereas the Caspian Sea has 23%. Wow. Or not the, sorry, the Lake oh, Baikal is 23%. Hell, yeah. 
Caspian Sea actually has more water, but it's salty water. So we, that's why I kind of ruled it out in the, the two-point clue there. No, for sure, because you'd get a bunch of them actually is on that if you didn't otherwise. Yeah. Or a bunch of people just, you know, it, I don't know if y'all use this word. It's a word that gets used in the quiz bowl scene called neg bait, mm -hmm. where you basically give a clue that is almost tricking the player into giving an answer that, that you know, you would ordinarily expect to be the answer, but isn't the answer to the question. Oh, yeah. I misuse the term neg bait all the time now that uh, you've brought it up in my streams and a couple other people have. <laughs> I'm like, neg bait right. just when I'm a dick. <laughs> all right. Well, y'all are doing better in the second half here. Confidence boosted. Don't call it a comeback. Yeah. All right, question number nine. This is another one of those three-pointers that was such an interesting fact we just wanted to include it. Uh, name the political figure described below. For three points, negotiated the surrender of the Lockerbie plane bombers with Muammar Gaddafi. Well, that pins down year, but really not much else unless we're talking about a British or an Irish uh, politician. Because uh, the Lockerbie thing was like 83, wasn't it? I could be off a year or two either way on that. Jay, do you have any uh, memories of that? No, no. I feel comfortable we're talking early 80s, though. But that, as we learned from Nadia, doesn't necessarily mean that they were prominent in the 80s, necessarily. Uh, very neat. Let's see what happens yeah. at two. For two points, gave the I am prepared to die speech at the Ravonia trial in 1964. Oh, I feel even worse now with that information. That's not good. Uh, I, I don't know anything about the uh, <laughs> I am prepared to die speech. Not a speech that I am familiar with, sadly. Um, rather than, you know, whiff at it, uh, let's hear the one pointer. All right, for one point, became president of South Africa in 1994. Ah, there it is. No, that really for the the Lockerbie thing was really this guy. Wow. Right, Jay, do you want to take the answer on this? I, I feel comfortable that, you know, it. <laughs> think again, um, I'll give you a hint. Much like, you know, he is not dead, despite what the Berenstain Bears would want you to believe. Oh, OK, so it's a very is, effective uh, Nelson clue. Mandela. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is indeed Nelson Mandela. Yeah, the Lockerbie bombing was in 1988. Um, was so it that late in the 80s? My bad. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and the I am prepared to die speech is it's kind of the famous speech that he gave uh, at his trial for treason that ended up in him getting locked up for 20 something years, uh, basically saying, you know, I have fought for these ideals. Uh, mm -hmm. If necessary, I'm prepared to die for them. Well, and as we all know, he did die in prison, so true to his word. <laughs> Indeed, killed by those dang Berenstain Bears and Shazam the Genie. <laughs> all right, your 10th and final question, and this one is all over the map as far as ins, so lots of ways in. For three points, or sorry, uh, give the name shared by the following. It's a common link question. For three points, the second studio album by Pixies Featuring the song, Here Comes Your Man. Well, I'm willing to guess that it's not a self-titled album because the first thought that came to mind was maybe he's about to say the album, Here Comes Your Man. Shit. <laughs> um, I don't know Pixie's album names. I know a handful of Pixie's song names. Like, Where Is My Mind? Here Comes Your Man. Um, uh, there's one that was in like the Guitar Hero rock band family that I'm blanking on and I can almost hear it. Uh, Wave of Mutilation. I think is the one that I'm thinking of, uh, but I'm pretty sure that's not going to connect the two other names. So, yeah, I, I couldn't give you any other albums. All right, let's go uh, for two. 
Yeah, Wave of Mutilation also on this same album, uh, I will say. It's a great song. Great album. All right, for two points, more Amcon. I'm sorry, uh, Jay. It's an American-centric set of questions I picked, I think. For two points, the American officer who led the April 1942 air raid on Tokyo. Okay, I remember it now. Thank God I watched that terrible Pearl Harbor movie. I got this dead to rights for two, Jay. I forget his first name. His last name is Doolittle. You good with that? That that would make for a a nice... uh third question yeah would you care to guess what the one point clue for this question might be (laughs) Uh, a very particular linguistic veterinarian Uh, it is a fictional doctor played on screen by rex harrison eddie murphy and robert downey jr i forgot about downey jr playing him yeah no this is this is doolittle yeah yes it is indeed doolittle yes jimmy doolittle was the guy who read the led the doolittle raid uh, which took place four months after uh, Pearl Ar- the Pearl Harbor attack. Uh, basically, he and 15 other planes flew into Japan, bombed it, went to China, and then all of them bailed out of their planes in bad weather. Yeah, uh, they didn't. Which was, they almost made the coast of China, right? That was a big like plot point in the back half of Pearl Harbor. Is they weren't quite, uh, they were too heavy or didn't have the fuel capacity to fully make it. So one of the one of the planes didn't have the fuel to make it to China and it ended up bailing out in Russia. The rest of them, or I guess the Soviet Union at that point, uh, the rest of them did make it into China, but not to where they were supposed to land. And so oh, they okay. ended up having to get helped by John Birch, who's the namesake of like the crazy right wing mm, anti-communist right. organization. He's a missionary who ended up helping them get past Japanese lines uh, and get back to basically the Soviet Union where they could then head home. Okay. And yeah, Uh, Doolittle is the second album by the Pixies uh, following Surfer Rosa. Those two are kind of generally considered to be their their two best albums. I I forgot about Surfer Rosa. That's ringing a stronger bell than Doolittle, to be honest. Um, Was it Alec Baldwin who played Jimmy Doolittle in Pearl Harbor? Or am I just confusing people I don't love in Hollywood? Yeah, that I I could not tell you. I have avoided seeing Pearl Harbor to this point in my life, and I have no plans to rectify that. So, yeah, uh, it it may be. We, you know, it is Googleable, but I, uh, I do not know. Let's take a look. Pearl Harbor. I am actively looking right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> it was. It was, in fact, Alec Baldwin. Um, I yes. remember like three things from the film Pearl Harbor, not including the fact that it was a bad movie, uh, and that's the third thing. Okay. Yeah, he doesn't even appear on my list of characters. He must not have been in it for very long. Or this. Oh, there it is. Historical characters. There he is. All right. Yeah, same Look, problem I had the on Wikipedia. that. So yeah, those are that's kind of an idea of kind of what a pub quiz bowl game is like. Um, you know, hopefully you can attest it's like a satisfying feeling when you figure out that three point clue and and you get to lock in. Um, no, it very much is. Uh, no, you guys do really good work with that. I am a huge fan of the format. Um, I'm such a fan of it and of you that I can't steal it, which makes me sad. Well, yes, stay out of our territory. Um, <laughs> No, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's you know, I think it's an interesting it's different than what I think most folks are doing in the pub trivia world. And so I think it's hopefully I think our players like it. I uh, I think other players might like it if they checked it out. So swing on by. No, you see, uh, uh, you see, see uh, <laughs> yeah, you see the, the work that you put in with the uh, the concept and the execution. It really hits on all levels. And this is the part where you plug uh, Dan, if people wanted to play a PQB live events or anything else that you guys are doing over there, where would they find you? So uh, we got two games that we do. Uh, There's a weekly game we do on Twitch. You can find us there at twitch.tv slash PQB live. 
Uh, we do games, and let's see if I can get the times right. Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central every week. Uh, it's a 20 question game. It lasts just about an hour. It leads nicely into Jason's LK game every week. Um, so come and check us out. It's a fun time. We also do something a little bit different. Uh, on the last Saturday of every month, uh, we do a game for Trivia Mafia, which is a local company here in Minnesota, which is more of a traditional pub trivia game. We have uh, an audio visual round. We have a music round. We have a last round that, that's kind of similar to what I did here, tries to replicate it in an untimed format. Uh, it's a ton of fun. Uh, at this point, people can buy tickets to that. It's $5 a device. It's, you know, we had, I think, I don't know, 80 people or something at the last one. It was a ton of fun. We try and do some interesting things with the, you know, the visual and the audio rounds in that to make it, you know, worth your while, get bang for your buck. So, uh, and that can be found at triviamafia.com slash black diamond, or if you just Google Trivia Mafia Black Diamond, it should get you there. Uh, so yeah, that's what I've got to plug. Uh, come check us out. We'd love to love to hear from you. Fantastic. And I have played uh, at least the PQB live portion of that uh, half of the plugs, and it is absolutely worth it. Uh, Jay, you also stream on Tuesdays. Where can people find you? Yeah, so I'm also on Twitch, twitch.tv slash smartypintstrivia. Um, or you can go to my website, smartypints.ca, because I'm Canadian, of course, <laughs> which I think is uh, all we really talked about tonight. Um, yeah, I don't think that came up uh, too often in the episode, no. <laughs> yeah, smartypints.ca or uh, smartypints on Facebook or Instagram. I haven't quite figured out how Instagram works, but uh, that's, that's a thing I post on sometimes. Um, but yeah, I do uh, theme nights on Tuesdays. That'd be 7 p.m. Uh, Central, 8 p.m. Eastern. And then on Thursdays, uh, just general knowledge kind of stuff. Uh, generally takes about two hours. And uh, hey, I think it's fun. Maybe you'll think it's fun too. I do think it's fun. It's a really good game. I've had the pleasure of having both of you uh, co-host. Well, not so much you, Dan, specifically, but the the fine folks that you are part of over at PQB Live uh, on my yeah, channel. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of the man behind the curtain in our company. Yeah. So, you know, Danny does most of the actual hosting, but uh, it's a team team effort, I would say. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, now, as for me, I also stream on Tuesdays, uh, but I go at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, and that is at twitch.tv slash liquid underscore courage. Courage spelled with the letter K because that's the best letter of the alphabet between J and L. Uh, and as for us here at Quadrivia, if you want to find us, uh, you can find us on social media. Just look up at Quadrivia Pod, either on Twitter or Facebook. If you want to send us an email with uh, roundtable suggestions for topics or keyword challenges or uh, just to tell me to lay off the CanCon bashing, you can do so at quadriviapod at gmail.com uh, or check out... Uh, if you want to vote for our keyword challenges or see the questions from our game rounds, those are posted every week at quadriviapodcast.com. And with all of that out of the way, I think we should leave it to Dan for the outro. Oh no, what do I say for the outro? Where do we go? God, I can't, I, I shitpost on you being uh, Canadian so much. And I like you and I like Canada and your town rhymes with fun. Why do I do this to you? <laughs>
<laughs> I'll, I'll just have to start ripping on you for uh you turned 40 didn't you it was your birthday the other day i don't want to talk about it <laughs> there we go now we're you don't want to talk about it <laughs> <laughs> i have brief and intermittent memories of my 40th birthday which is the way we should all celebrate it by the way just you know briefly and intermittently <laughs> and then move the hell on uh, there we go <laughs>